0: Hi, this is Gino Vanelli, and this is Talking Blues.
1: I want to start with um, your family background. Your, your dad was a musician. Singer. Singer. Tell me about what influence that had on you as becoming a musician.
0: Well, of course, you know, know, uh, when you're born, your parents are a tremendous influence on you because they're the model by which you live by at two or three or four or five years old. So because my father, you know, sang in the house all the time, bought records, played records, you know, music was ubiquitous.
1: Did your love of jazz come from your dad?
0: Yes, he he was not... um, you know, such an aficionado to get too deep, but he he did bring home albums by Miles and Coltrane and uh, Gillespie and a lot of big band jazz. So uh, then on my own, I I really got into other other players, McCoy Tyner, and you know the the whole era of Love Supreme and 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 uh, you know. And then uh, I loved Sam Woodyard, who played with, with Duke Ellington. I mean, there was all these heroes I had, you know, at the time growing up. And that played a big part of my education. Right. But so you got into jazz pretty early in your life. It, it's just jazz got into me.
1: Can you, expl- can you maybe describe that and how that might have happened?
0: Well, because all the notes and the way it was played and how it was played and and, and the combination of the notes and, and the sequence of the notes, the the, the, the cadence of the, of the notes. I mean, it just just kind of struck a chord with me, and it just bounced around in me, and I just kind of tripped with it.
1: And then you you also into classical music. Did that come
0: early? I didn't see that as any different than jazz. I just saw because I I I knew I was a bit of a musicologist at, as a young at a young. Age And I knew that a lot of early classical musicians would go and, and really uh, expand and really you know push the envelope late at night after their classical gig and go to a club and really play the, the kind of stuff they wanted to play. So a lot of them, a lot of the early uh, jazz players were really classical musicians. For instance, I mean, even Mozart would stay at the piano and kind of improvise and right. do stuff. Beethoven would do that all the time, you know. Ravel, a, lot, a lot of his stuff was improvisational, but so good that he kept it as, as as pieces.
1: And is that how you write?
0: Oh, I write all kinds of ways. You know, I, I usually write from sentiment first. If I have a if I have a strong sentiment, then I, I, I find the means to uh, realize it, to put it to put some flesh and bone on it. Your first love of uh,
1: instrument was the drums.
0: Mm. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, the, the the drums had an appeal to me because it was basic, it was primal, you know. And as a child, I felt that I was very primal. I had just rhythm inside of me, and, and um, I, I love the sound of tom-toms and paradiddles and, and just swing and all that. And so when I saw Gene Krupa when I was a young, young boy and... I think it was an early forties or mid forties movie with the Harry James. And Harry James in those days was the only guy to give Gene Krupa a solo. That's why he was one of the first star drummers. Right. Uh, that really that really hit me and I, I wanted to do that. And I found that I could do that very I mean not easily, but you know, I had facility, put it that way. I remember once coming home. I was 11 years old and, and there was a line of kids auditioning for a group called the Cobras and they were using Wipeout as, right. as, as, as you know, a, a gauntlet that people had to run. <laughs> and so um, there were all these 17, 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old drummers and they were very trying out. And um, I, I just, you know, after listening to Joe Morello and Max Roach and Art Blakey, I mean, that stuff was just really rudimentary.
1: Did you know at that point you wanted to be a musician? You said you were really oh, into music. I always
0: knew it from from the time I was two or three years old. I had no doubt. And did you want to be Gene Krupa? Was that the goal? Well, at first, I, I mean, I wanted to make music, and at first, it was it was all about the drums, and I practiced day you know day in day out. Took lessons for five years. Learned how to read. Um... You know, learn how to really, really um, get really specific about my Ludwig's, which were the, some of the greatest drummers, you know, in the early '60s. Mm-hmm. And, and then I had a set of premieres too that I loved for for more jazzy stuff. But for the more R and B rock stuff, I would I would use the, the Ludwig's. And then I joined, I formed and joined various groups from the ages of, of twelve. At twelve, I was a relief drummer for a big club in Montreal called the Casaloma. And um, then I formed a a band called Jacksonville five when I was 13. So it was always band after band, um, instrument after instrument when I suddenly sat at the piano, I said, "Oh no, this is some, this is a challenge. But it kind of made sense to me where, where all the keys were divided, right. it seemed to me I, I, I knew where Middle C was and go from there. And um, I, as a child, I, I, I attended so many Montreal Symphony concerts. That all that all that stuff, you know, just ricocheted off the walls of my brain. So I, I tried to emulate it and tried to bring it through my own fingers.
1: Did you ever train in classical music?
0: Some. I, I, I had uh, piano teachers um, all through my late teens and twenties, even when I was in, living in Los Angeles. And uh, I took formal uh, theory, of course, but I took um, I spent a year at McGill but it just it just seemed too slow for me. I, I I was already listening to very, very progressive and polyharmonies, and I wanted to go faster, and I wanted to go at the speed of light. I mean, if the teacher would have showed me something from Mahler or Prokofiev or something like that, I would have said, okay, let, let's stick here. But it was too rudimentary for me, so I, I moved to New York, and I various people who were jazz musicians or jazz guitar players who I'd sit with and and study their playing and, and try to emulate them.
1: Can I ask, you, when you were in the bands like the Cobras and, and the Jacksonville Five, um,
0: what kind of music was that? I, it, it was it was you know mainstream pop music okay. of the day, like the Ventures, you know, beach music. I mean, uh, it was a, this electronic tremolo guitar music, you know. But um, it was a great experience for me because it was learning how to play with people, mm-hmm. learning to hear the guitar player, hear the bass player. Are we in time? Um, The stage in those days didn't have monitors. So you had to really listen attentively, you know, because there was maybe a slap back from the high school auditorium. So there was a lot, a lot of lessons to learn how quickly to set up, how quickly to feel comfortable. um, And, and, you know, how long your stamina, how hard to play, Mm -hmm. how soft to play.
1: You met Gene Cooper, if I'm not mistaken. What was that experience like? And what, what, did it teach you?
0: Well, it was a great experience, but it was very, uh, in a way, disheartening because um, I, I think you know, Mr. Krupa had come off at rehab and, and he, looked, he looked a little shabby and he looked a little hunched over and, and um, a little wan, a little pale. And um, so he didn't have the vibrancy and that, that crazy look in his eyes that he had when he was playing with harry james you know maybe 15 years earlier right i met him in 1960 61 something like that and um i was fortunate enough to sit right beside his tom-tom you know right his tom-tom was like two uh, a foot or two from me and uh, i heard his <laughs> and i saw his his how he crossed his arms and how he did that stuff. And, uh, of course, it was old-fashioned by the time, you know, 1961 roll, rolled around. But he still had that down, and he still had that deep swing rhythm. Was
1: it kind of disappointing then?
0: Well, yeah. the only thing that was disappointing was the fact that he was so drawn. Right. You know, um, and and, and he, his energy was, was leaving him. So, you moved to the States. Did you think that...
1: Um Staying in Canada was no way of succeeding, or I
0: mean, what what made you move to the states? It's much more simpler than that. Canada was really in its infantile stages as far as the music industry was concerned. You know, this was right before you know Brian Adams or Celine Dion, and, right? You know, and and by that time, by the mid eighties, late eighties, all the studios, the producers, the musicians really started getting with it. But you know, 1969, 1970... Yeah, there were a couple of studios that were pretty good, but it it just wasn't world-class.
1: At the age of, what, 17, you Mm -hmm. had signed your first deal with RCA. Yes. Um, Did you have an idea of what that meant and what you would hope to achieve
0: being signed at that age? I mean, you Mm -hmm.
1: seemed to be very mature musically at that point.
0: Yeah, but when it came time to what inspires you, uh, what lights your fire, I mean, at 17 years old, you're dealing with you know, parents, you're dealing with relatives, you're dealing with living under the same roof of people telling you what to do. You're, you're living uh, with the authoritarianism of, you know, uh, a Catholic parochial high school. Uh, you're living with the authoritarianism, you know, of just being 17. 17. And, and, and uh, having to follow everybody else's rules. And of course, every 17 year old wants to break away. Mm. So that was the, the, the linchpin of my wanting to get out and do something. Um, Also, I mean, I knew what that meant. It meant that if I didn't earn my own way, if I didn't make my own money, I couldn't be on my own. So the first motivation is, I've got to make my own money. I've got to get out there and not depend on my parents or anybody else. I want to do it. I want to be my own man. And then the question was, how? <laughs> and did you know what that meant
1: as well? I mean, did it mean just selling records? Did it mean touring? Or
0: No, I didn't know it. Because when you're 17, there's no, there's no guide, there's no manual on how to become a star, right. how to become a great songwriter, how to become a great singer. You just study. You study, you study, you listen. You, you try to learn by osmosis. Uh, you try to learn by modeling yourself. You, you read. I mean, I was always a great fan of the lake poets. I was always a great fan of some of the American poets like you know, Walt Whitman and Longfellow. I studied their lives and their way of writing and tried to understand how they would form lyrics and ideas and metaphor and things of that nature and how I could attribute that to songwriting. Then I studied, you know, Sammy Kahn and Ira Gershwin and Howell David and, and Cole Porter and, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein and Gilbert and Sullivan and, and how they wrote their lyrics and, and uh, uh, you know, the incredible dynamism, you know, they had in, in their thought process. So I knew that I had to really elevate, not only elevate, but expand my thought process to be a good lyricist.
1: So, okay, I just want to go back to something you said about um, how to be a star, and I don't know, like I, I look at you, I read about you, and what I see is a person who's been a student of music, and a sp- student of words and, and writings, and who takes music very seriously, and who yes. has seen not just one type of music, but all kinds of music. Yes, yes. Um, and to this day, you seem to be a student of music. Oh, yeah, always. I yeah. just wonder, when you said
0: about how to be a star, and I know you were younger then,
1: was that a dream? Was that a goal? Or was it always about... Well, you it?
0: see, star means different, to, different things to different people. By my, my definition of being a star was, I want to be on stage, and I want to sing, and I want to share, and I want people to hear what I got to say. Right. Y- y- you know, this is an instinctive thing That nature or God or whatever word you want to attribute to, this force within you, pushes you. And this is the way, this is human nature. When people have something, their first instinct, you know, if I tell you, I want to tell you a secret. Now don't tell anybody. (laughs) That's a surefire. I'll just keep it between us. Yeah, right. It's a surefire way of having you tell someone else, Right. right? So it's our instinctive nature to want to share things that we might think that we have. But okay, so
1: you started off on the drums. You picked up the keyboard, and I believe you also picked up the guitar yes. at one point. At what point did, did singing come into play?
0: Singing came when um, our singer in the group uh, couldn't quite make the notes on "It's Not Unusual" by Tom Jones yeah. in 1965, and um, I found that I I could you know I could do it, and I just showed him how to do it. And my dad happened to be at, at our rehearsal, and he said know, I, I think maybe it's you should sing it you know don't you think you should sing it and and everybody looked at each other and the singer was a little off you know put off by it and he said yeah okay Gino, you should sing that song you know and so um then my father added he said you know it sounds okay, but he says y- you really should be off the drums, you know, and go in the front, take the microphone, and sing it. Oh no, that I, now that was really, really too much for me because at 13 I was incredibly shy. Yes, I was an aficionado of music. I was gonna do something in music, but I never, it never entered my mind to be a stand-up vocalist.
1: Wow! And so, also, you love the drums.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I, and uh, drums became a fortress. I mean, just ask Karen Carpenter. It was. It was death for her to get off the drums right. and be in front. But I um, had a long conversation with her about it. Oh, really? Uh, and, and so uh, I was pushed off the drums you know, I- into the front. And I noticed by the time I got halfway through the song, you know, the cute little girls were coming up to the front. And people were drawing up to the lip of the stage. And uh, I said, you know, this could be OK. <laughs>
1: but did you sing a lot around the house that your dad knew that you could do
0: this? Yes. OK. Oh. Yes, I did, but it never dawned on me to actually be a professional singer, until maybe about fourteen or fifteen. And did that come easy to you? Well, at first, yes, the raw talent, yes, and then then the, the you know the learning, the breathing, the perfection, the diction, and when I was about sixteen, I had oh uh, uh, no, seventeen, I had my first record deal, and uh, I. I had gone to RCA, I'd, I had played all the instruments and um, did a song and, or two and they called, they called me the next day, they called home the next day and, and told my parents that they accepted me and they wanted to record me. Right. So that, that, was, that was a lot of relation for me. Um, but um, I learned very quickly that how you're singing you know, at home, downstairs, at the piano is not quite the way the mic hears it. And then after the record came out, I was shocked when I heard myself being interviewed. I had such a, a Montreal, a, you know, French-Italian patois. Uh-huh. And I said, oh my God, I, I, will never, I will never be taken seriously with that kind of dialect. And so uh, I worked really hard and I asked my dad, what's your suggestion and then I asked a few other people. I, I went to a few coaches, and they all um, unanimously said that just read the newspaper out loud and record yourself.
1: Like, what amazes me is that at such a young age that you were so aware of these things, you know? To to do an interview, most other people would probably be more just happy to hear themselves and, and think, wow, well, I got interviewed. But for you to kind of
0: analyze what you heard
1: and to think, I need to improve myself on that.
0: Oh, yeah, you you you... you, you. <laughs> you can't talk about music seriously and sound like Vinnie Boombats, you know. <laughs> uh, there's just something antithetical about, uh, about a serious musician. And, but by the same token, I, I, I learned to lighten up a little bit about it, you know. That, that music, I took music that seriously, but too serious, and, and uh, you know, it's just too much pepper on your steak.
1: <laughs> okay, and then after that deal, I don't know if it fell through or not, but you decided to go to L.A.,
0: to seek a, a record deal. Well I spent a year and a half in New York. Right. And and then I went home and I I formed a group, earned some money, put about four or five thousand dollars together, built a home studio, and then Joe and I went to Los Angeles, stayed there for four months and I got lucky. The day before Christmas I A and M, you know, signed me and, and I recorded for A M for seven years. Did you know when you
1: approached Herb Alpert in the in the parking lot and gave him your demo.
0: No, I didn't give him a demo. Oh. I just said, You gotta listen to me. And so he just listened to you? No, he said, Come back in thirty minutes. Wow. Right right as the guard was right. tearing me away. <laughs> Cause you basically threw went through security and, and went after. Yes. Right? I, I threw I threw uh, Herb Alpert, you know, a very pitiful glance <laughs> <laughs> and he took pity and he said, Okay, you know, come back in thirty minutes and I'll listen And I played for him and he just told me, Welcome to the family
1: I, I would assume that at this point you know what you have. You're confident in who you are and what you're able to bring.
0: Am I I was fearful, it? but I I read a lot of books about including Churchill, about there is no man that never is without fear. And the question is how how do you how do you push through your fear? And there's many, many ways to push through your fear. You could be a wild man, you could be a clown, you could do humor, you can do it with religion, you can do it with a faith of your own, you can do it with um, apathy, you can do it with... There's many, many ways to push through your fear. And my way was to just, almost like the ballerina, of spotting. If you know what spotting is, right. spotting is, is so that you don't get vertical when, when you're, you're doing pirouettes. So I would just spot, I said, that's what I want. And all my fear was all around it, circling and trying to stop me. And I said, no, that's where I want to go.
1: So once you signed with A&M, and I presume that's where you met
0: Karen Carpenter. Yes, so, um, and, and many others.
1: Yeah, you, you started recording and success came not immediately, but pretty quickly.
0: Well, not the first album. And then Herb and I had a discussion. I was in Montreal. He said, uh, look, I'll give you another chance, but don't blow it. I said, so I decided to form a group. I put a Canadian group together, Richard Baker, John Mandel, Graham Lear, my brother Joe. It was a unique kind of uh, quartet quintet with two keyboards, a percussionist and a drummer. Uh, and the, the second keyboardist would play keyboard bass, much like the keyboardist for, for The Doors, right. only that he was a jazzer. And so he could really play complicated lines and, and really kind of groovy stuff. And, um, so we really worked hard for a month. We, we, we rehearsed the crazy life album and I started writing the powerful people album and with it, people got to move. Right. And, um, we recorded it and Herb was gracious enough to say, um, you know, you seem to be on your own track. So he said, I'm going to bow out and just executive produce. Cause Joe and I at that time started experimenting with synthesizer sounds that would you synthesizer bass, synthesizer, horns, strings, Emulation, but more of a a, a caricature style uh, orchestration, and that's what powerful people was really all about.
1: And and did you, when somebody says, "I'm going to give you one more chance," that's a lot of pressure. It is and, a lot of pressure. Did and, you feel that pressure? And did you? Uh, and once again, I, 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 you probably spotted or whatever that you were focused on 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 the mission. But tell me how you reacted
0: to that. Um. You know, uh, at, at that age, I mean, I, my ambition was un, unstoppable, you know, and I, I would feel myself get knocked down right. and and I'd, I'd fall to one knee, but I'd always feel this, this hand within me picking me up and pushing me forward. Um, I, I, I almost felt it was destiny that I had to keep doing it so when fear set in that this could be it maybe they'll kick me off the label i just have this voice inside me would say no damn way i'm gonna do it and that basically meant you
1: had to have commercial success
0: that's true which is a difficult thing to predict yes and and but i also i believed in kismet i believed in fate not in a sense, in a fatalistic sense, not in a third-person kind of sense where someone reads your tarot cards. I believed in fate in the sense that if you have a hunch, you have, a, you have an inkling, you have an instinct, the path will be open to you. Because I believe every man, every woman has their own path. That's a potential for them. And if they see it, the path will open up for them. When did you realize this? I, I knew this at four or five years old. Wow. I knew it when I walked into my first church and I uh, heard priests starting to talk in Latin, say things I couldn't understand, and I just said, this is not for me. This, this is completely, it's gibberish. Right. And I said, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'll ever go to church. And I knew this at, at, at six years old. And then the 150-piece choir started singing as the pipe organ played. And when I heard that, I said, oh, now I get it. You know, I think Jesus really does live here. (laughs) It was music. It was the sound. It was the sound of music. It was the vibration in a still hall, in a still, cold, cemented hall that suddenly brought warmth and brought humanity and brought something divine. And that's what filled me and it filled me with the idea that because i felt it so much it gave me another kind of intelligence just like a you know i have two aussies and and it's easy to say well they don't understand things we understand but it's also easy to say we don't understand things they understand they're walking by and sniffing things and sussing things out on their own level Mm -hmm. they're smelling things a hundred times more than we are and their brain is working on a whole different level so once you get that kind of music thing, that's why musicians, in a sen- sense, have their own language. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're, they're really not adept at, at speaking very eloquently, but, but their depth of knowledge is, is a, a doctorate times 10.
1: When I listened to your music back then,
0: um, I always thought
1: that you were in a class of your own. Like it, you didn't sound like anybody else to me. Um, And I don't know who you would have been influenced by, obviously, the
0: jazz and the classical and everything you heard. Sure. But
1: was there any artist that you kind of modeled yourself after? Was that
0: not the case? Sometimes you can model yourself after an artist and not sound like them at all. Right. I mean, I I, I would listen closely to Nelson Riddle's arrangements, Alex Stordell. Billy May, when he did all the Sinatra records. I listened to the the recordings, where the drums were, how busy the drums were, where the trumpets were, how the violins came in, how he blended the two, and how the hell did he get it in one take. And then how did Sinatra sing over that, you know, and what did he have to do with it? And his phrasing, how simple, how effective it was. So that was a really, really big influence on me. But of course, the same kind of thing applied with Miles Davis. His simplicity, his tone, how, how his piano players, including Bill Evans, would do the things around him so that it never seemed too busy, but it was full and it was meaningful. How Miles was a really st- a good stickler for melody, for um, and f- to know just how to break the melody, where to break the melody, his sense of time, his instincts, that's what impressed me the most. And, and of course, I, I loved, um, I didn't think he was the best player in the world. But um, Dave Brubeck wrote these very interesting songs that mm-hmm. were, you know, a little bit classical, a little bit jazz, and, and all the to- odd time signatures, and, and, and of course, uh, you know, uh, how the group came together. And and, and uh, the soft sax playing and Joe Morello's touch on his cymbals. So I mean, I, I model myself after what I thought was the best, and of course I fell short. I mean, it, it's just it's one thing to hear it and say I want to be like that, and then try it yourself, and you realize how difficult it is. Maybe you you know you master this little part of it, but then you add that little part, and it totally screws that up mm-hmm. part that you've mastered. And then sometimes you master the fact that you can create a track that's a beautiful track in the studio with your musicians. And it's just a work of art. And somehow you put your voice to it, it just doesn't gel. And so that was another thing to try to master. And so it, it literally takes years and effort and years and effort. And, um.
1: Are you ever satisfied? Like, and you No, that's to the p- key.
0: That the key is not to be satisfied. And to be comfortable with the satisfaction.
1: Right. Um, you mentioned your band before, the, the band that you put together, and, and Graham Lear, who mm-hmm. happens to be one of my favorite drummers, who went on to play with Santana as well. Right. Um, how is it easy? I mean, I think you're also known for having great musicians working with you. How easy is it to find a band and, and get top-notch musicians to do
0: the kind of music you want to do? It's 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 fantastically easy to get great musicians. Right really hard to get the right musicians and, and it was always a lot of auditions and, because for me it wasn't only the guy who had the greatest chops, the greatest time the greatest feel, yeah all that's great attitude I like to work in a room with people without ego I like to work towards a, a unified purpose we're making a record here mm-hmm. let's all think about it as such and I happen to be a singer, so we're all working towards making the singers sound right. If the singer doesn't sound right, the record fails. So and do
1: you still see yourself as singer first, more than anything else? Because I presume you still play piano, yes.
0: drums, and guitar. I take my singing quite seriously. Right. And and, and um, I went back for, for vocal lessons in my late 40s. And it took three years again, and it really brought me to another level, to sing the Canto album. Right. And um, on this new album, Wilderness Road, I took my my vocals to another place. I I took them very, very, very seriously. So seriously that that I'd have sometimes five sessions, completely distinctively different sessions, uh, before I was happy with my vocal. Because sometimes I'd, I'd sing aggressively, sometimes too gentle, sometimes without expression, sometimes a, a, a uh, purposefully deadpan approach that I would listen to the next day at home on my computer saying no that, that's that's not the right approach until I landed on the right what I thought was the, the right approach vocally. and I still practice but not too often just every two three days I vocalize and it's important just like uh, lifting weights or doing push-ups or running if you run every day your knees are going to go right You do weights every day, your muscles are going to just fail. So there's a time of stress, force, strain, then there's a time of, of a restoration. So every two or three days, I'll sing out, and then I'll let the voice rest for, for two days.
1: Is it? I'm working on a documentary right now, a short film about a cellist at the Juilliard. Yeah. And his daughter was talking about um, her father's love of the instrument and how much he practices and how in some ways it's torture for him because he seeks perfection and he will practice for eight hours a day. And she thought that most people who are really good at music have some sort of torturous existence with their instrument. And then she said, well, maybe not
0: vocalists, because that's part of them. Tell me about the relationship between you and your... If there's a certain part of it that can be tor- tortuous, um, but again, that's your attitude towards yourself. You know, if you keep beating yourself up, it's going to be torture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you start taking a lighter approach to life, that you know we're all we're all born and we're all going to die, and you know somewhere in between, we want to have a good time. <laughs> um, if if you if you look at it that way, your instrument becomes your enemy. It it becomes your adversary. And it, there's a way of practicing. You know, eight hours a day, if you need eight hours a day, without getting carpal tunnel and mm-hmm. wrecking yourself and getting arthritis. There's a way of doing it. Uh, I think, uh, having fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the lick may be hard to get, the scales may be hard to do, it may hurt. Your pinky may be, you know, defying you. But you just do it. You just do it with with the attitude that it'll come, it'll come. And if it doesn't come perfectly, it'll stum. It'll still come great. I learned that um, I had a long conversation with a Hindu monk once. He says, so what's your problem? I said, well, I I seek perfection. He says, do you you seek to be great or do you seek perfection? Because perfection is not not necessarily great. He says, some of the, the greatest people who gave us the greatest things on this earth were tremendously flawed.
1: Right. When you had the success, was that close to perfection or was it not even close? No, it's not even close.
0: So no, what did that the the no.
1: commercial success you had in the
0: late seventies, early eighties, what yeah. did that mean to you? Uh, hardly anything. I mean, it just meant like, oh, that's nice. What's next? I mean, that's when we before we did Black Cars, I said to Joe, I want to record a record that we we haven't ever recorded before. Let's go completely new school. Mm-hmm. No band, nothing. I'm going to play the drums. I'm gonna let's program this, let's use all these new digital instruments and see if we could come up with something that's interesting, that's actually a hit. If and it wasn't
1: a hit, how would that have changed you?
0: I would have just said, well, okay, it wasn't a hit, we need to do something else now. But uh, because it was a hit, it gave me an opportunity uh, to do other things, I mean, to record another album, to do Wild Horses. And because that was a big hit, it afforded me an opportunity to record again. And then it gave me enough uh, money and finances and means to say, you know what? I, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I really, I, I'm now I'm approaching 40 years old. I really ought not to compete with 20 year olds, you know, trying to do pop music. I need to go to back to my roots now. Because it was a time in Los Angeles when I was supporting a lot of people. You know, I, I, I think I had to put out $100,000 a month to keep everybody wow. alive. Was that pressure? Yes, of course it's pressure. And, and I just said, I, I don't want to do those things anymore. So I said to, to everybody, I'm leaving and I, I want to remember why I got into this at 18 years old or 17 years old. So I moved to Portland and I built my own studio and I came up with an album called Yonder Tree. Now, of course, the album sold a quarter of what all my other albums sold. But I look back very fondly upon that experience, you know, and I know there's some great songs on, on that record. And I said, that's what I need to be doing. See, See, this comes back to our early conversation. Faith is different for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. My faith is, is indelibly linked to my sense of coming to full bloom. When I was a young man, I walked by a garden and I was asking questions. Who am I and where am I going and how do I get there? And I walked by a Japanese garden and I saw these beautiful red roses you know, staring at the sun in full bloom. And I said, that's it. That's exactly, that's all I gotta be. I just gotta come to full bloom. And I'll know it. And when I come to full bloom, I'll have, I'll have succeeded. Whatever. Whatever the outcome. And I knew instinctively that nature, or God, or the way life is, let's just call it life. Life, rewards you in currencies that you never expect so a success may be very bad currency a failure may be just the right currency
1: well it amazes me that throughout your career you've you've consistently put out albums not every year but on a regular basis and you've also pursued different kinds of music whereas a lot of other people wouldn't uh, for the fear of losing their audience or for the fear of not succeeding sure does that, so
0: that's never come into play with you? Hardly. Hardly. I mean, I, I, would, I would always have one eye and, uh, on the public and, or one ear, you know, kind of bent towards the public, wondering what they would think of this. But the sensation of having to do this thing that was inside of me overpowered any fear that I might have of non acceptance. That's what I did when I did canto. I mean, my father would sing to me when I was a young boy, to allay some of my fears, and I'd go to sleep that way. And when he died, I said, someday I'll, I'll, I'll i remember this, it, it's as clear as a bell. I'd like to sing in Italian. I'd like, I'd like to sing in French. He would sing to me some French songs that were just beautiful. I loved the way the words flowed. And so, so I, I wrote Cœur," you know, and, and then I wrote, you um, know, canto, il viaggio, yeah. Una sola voce, you know, uh, de Esperanza. Um and I, I could sing differently in Italian. I could I could use my more my voice in a more dramatic way, and I could use my everything I learned about orchestration, uh, about about writing expansive uh, music, the art form, uh, and and I just let myself loose, and I I just did it uh, with the help of a good friend, uh, Glenn Morley, who, who co-produced it with me. And um, to this day, people appreciate that record. It, the, the currency was not immediately, it was not immediate with that, with that record. It, it just, it didn't pay me a million dollars after I recorded the record. It sort of sat there, but through the years, people want to hear the songs. Uh, another form of currency was, I got a personal call from the Vatican, and they wanted me to perform one of the songs you know, there for the Pope. So So, what uh,
1: was that like? So you you were talking about religion before. You were talking, here we are on Good Friday. um, But you were talking about stepping into church and not really relating to it until you heard the music. Yeah. But many years later, there you are
0: singing in the Vatican for the Pope. Like,
1: what was that like
0: for you? Well, I I know my history. You know, I, I, I understand. You know, I understand how the church got started, I understand Pope Valentinus, Gnosticism, Pope Irenaeus, you know, the the Nicene Council, how the Gospels were formed. I, as a musicologist, I'm also, you know, a person who studied my history of uh, understanding how religion got formed. And religion is nothing more than, you know, a a sort of institutionalized um, um, culture uh, that kind of helps people communicate, gives people sort of a, a, a streamlined um, goal mm-hmm. uh, or a, a kind of unification. And and, and and it grows and grows and grows and then it implodes and explodes and then it turns into something else. And then another one comes up, grows and grows and grows. And then you have all these offshoots. And so, so you, I understand and understood what it was. But... When the Pope, uh, John Paul, specifically asked me to sing for him, uh, I thought it was, I thought it was a good move career-wise. But I said, let me study the man and let me try to understand the man because they told me I'd have an audience with him. Right. So I studied what he had done during World War II, part of the resistance, um, how he helped a lot of Jews escape the Holocaust, how. In the 50s and 60s, he started helping the Polish people um, free themselves from the constraints of communism and the USSR. How he was instrumental in helping tear down the wall. How he was actually a playwright on his own, a poet. How he tried to build a bridge with other belief systems, other religions, albeit not as, as open as I would have liked him to be. But nonetheless, my respect for him was was profound, and I told him that when I met him, that he was he was a good pope, um, he was a good playwright, but he had um, he, he was, was a very very large human being, his experience was expansive. Mm-hmm. I said that's why he was a good pope, and I, I, I know that he understood what I was saying, and. Um, so that experience was, was profound for me. Now, he's a religious icon. Right. Um, there are not many other religious icons that I would consider um, having to perform for to be such a great experience.
1: When, when you decided to do Canto, was it, it's a beautiful album. Thank you. Is it, is it, was it a risky
0: thing or not? I never considered it a risky thing. I considered it an opportunity.
1: And that's probably how you look at most of your
0: albums. Yes. yes.
1: I, I also read that there was a long period of time where you didn't tour. Yeah, 12 years. Can I ask you why? And this was also during the time of Black Cars, was it not?
0: Yes, I, I had run into trouble with with Arista Records after a big hit with a, Living Inside Myself and Nightwalker. Um, I didn't want to do what the record company wanted me to do, basically. Right. And so I ran into a legal battle. So for three years, I was sort of, in a, in a sense, blacklisted. No one would touch me and I couldn't record and sort of stuck. Kind of like George Michael was with Sony mm. for a while or Prince was. And um, so uh, I, I had such misgivings about my life because I had programmed myself to be, this is what I was trying to say, it was too serious. I had taken myself too serious as a musician, as a, as a student of music. Um, so I said, something's wrong. Uh, if, if the music doesn't go on, does that mean I don't go on as a man? And I told my wife, I said, I, I, I have to find some other way to deal with life because I feel despondent. And it came to me that I need to go back to school. So I went, I went, I went, to, there's a Lutheran college that was near my house, went back, started um, studying with young students, 19 year old students. I took a minority literature, um, other forms of literature. I wanted to know how. A lot of South American, like Fuentes and, and Borges, studied them. And, and then I got so interested. You know, Borges and Fuentes, you know, really borderline with, with, with religion and mysticism themselves. Metaphysics, you know, like Borges, the, the, the story of the Aleph and all that. Right. Um, so I got into the humanities. Then I ended up getting into studying theology. I didn't want to study in college. Because I didn't want to hear the rigmarole that the professor had to give. I, I sought out specific teachers. So I sought out Hindu teachers. Um, Paramahansa Yogananda has a place up in the Pacific mountains uh, in, in Los Angeles. And there are great teachers there who teach that philosophy. I learned it for, for two years. studied it. Can
1: I ask you, what were you seeking in learning this?
0: Were you hoping to well, teach it or were you trying to you learn know, it? you know, selfishly speaking seeking the calm, seeking the peace, because I had not made peace with myself yet. Because without a career, I felt my life was in chaos. So I was seeking the other half, the man that really was the cause of the career. I had lost that man, I had lost that spirit. And so I sought teacher who taught Yogananda stuff. And then I went to a, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist temple, for, for a little while, uh, and, and and sought out the Buddhist way for a while, and then for uh, I had a Kabbalah teacher. The ancient, ancient Kabbalah is a very fascinating, complicated intellectual labyrinth of uh, the study of the human mind and um, how it thinks and where all these ideas come from in our subconscious. So I studied with. Of this teacher for for a year, and then I studied uh, uh, aficionados of Carl Jung uh, for 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 a year. So I I tried to then I, I went past academia, and I got into experiential religion.
1: Are, are you playing music at all, or is music in your yes, life? Yes, I'm it? writing.
0: Okay. I'm writing, and I'm fooling with the piano and and guitar and drums. I'm I'm mostly. Uh, um, learning with piano teachers, uh, expanding polychords, and learning how to, you know, to trade with guitar players and drummers. And I'm not writing as much as I am uh, studying. Right. Uh, and then, finally, I, 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 st- I started broadening into, like as I said, the experienti- experiential part of religion or metaphysics or uh, the ontological um, part of humankind put into practice, practical application. Like, why do I think the way I think and why do people think why do people usually go around with hostilities inside of them what is in their subconscious you know what is original sin okay but if if your love is of music and writing music
1: and playing music and having an audience Mm -hmm. and then that's taken away from you because of a dispute with a record company um, and I don't I don't know (laughs) like it seems natural that you would be angry and that you would feel lost not through anything of your
0: own, but because of these circumstances. Or am I incorrect? Well, enough? of course, I felt a little, you know, I felt despondent and a little hostile and angry and and a little vengeful, you know. I knew that those feelings were not going to get me anywhere. Right. You know, I might as well, you know, march with the next, you know, next band of, 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 of whiners, you know, down the street. You know, I mean, I, I... I I knew instinctively that the way to get over how I felt was knowledge, understanding.
1: Was there a point after this journey? Yes, there was
0: a point. After I had done the experiential stuff, some of it quite dangerous that I would not suggest. Extrasensory deprivation tanks, holotropic breathing breathing with, with, with uh, Stanislav Graf and his wife at the time. Um Um, Kabbalistic meditation which was a different form of meditation I mean, it it, it just uh, I got to a point where uh, it happened in the extrasensory deprivation tank after being there for 14 hours Uh, I got out something happened Uh, that's a very, very long conversation but something something dramatic happened and I said, I get it I, I get exactly what with Gotama and, and, and some of the great prophets we're talking about. I get it firsthand. It's not a book now. It's not words. It's inside of me. It's an experience. And I had the experience. And so I went home and I said, what now? So I had a choice. My, my Kabbalah teacher was, was dying. He had three days left to live. He told me that a year prior. And he says, I will teach you everything I know. Squeeze it into a year. So I said to him, I have a choice. I either really want to remain a student of the Kabbalah and eventually become a minister of the Kabbalah. And he drew me closer to him, and his last dying breath he told me that I was a complete idiot if I did that. And I said, why? He says, because your Kabbalah, your truth is your music. And that really, really hit me like like an arrow in the heart because I respected him profoundly. So I went home, and I said, got to change things. Let's move. Let's, let's change environs. I went up to the Northwest. I said, what do I want to do? I want to record what's fun. I want to allow the, that, that 18, 19-year-old kid to come surface and say, I love to be in the studio again. Let's just have a ball. And when that started happening... It was tough at first because people saying you're doing the wrong thing, you're killing your career, you're doing this, you're doing that wrong. But I allowed that to happen. And incidentally, that's what Wilderness Road is all about, the new record. Following the path that others almost forbid you to follow, but you know so deeply inside of you, that's what you need to do.
1: Did you ever worry about
0: losing your audience? Whether it be the, the time you took away from touring or... Jesus I didn't have to worry about it. It happened. <laughs> right, okay. It happened. I mean, during during the, the, the 90s, when I started to go off into a tangent, you know, with a little bit of the jazz combo and this and that, half the people walked out on me in Chicago when I was playing at a place called um, uh, something west, the Park West, with a thousand people in the audience, big, big, big supper club, and, and 500 people literally got up, and walked out. Okay, so what does that feel like to somebody who... At first, it's it's a sting. I mean, it's like a, oh my God, I thought they would love this, you know? And it's... um, I mean, they just want to hear things like the record. They want to hear... They felt that they own me, and so their $75 earned them the right Right. to see the picture they wanted to see. And uh, I said to myself, I got off stage... After all, everyone, promoters, managers, people told me that I was crazy. I was blowing my, my career, my life. On the way back to the hotel, I said, well, I got a choice to make. I'm either going to try to earn those 500 people back or try to expand the 500 people that stayed. Right. And I decided upon the latter.
1: What did those songs from the 70s and 80s mean to you? Cause I mean, I- they mean a lot to me now.
0: Okay, so Is what it- changed? perspective. You know, Carl Jung said your problems never go away. Your perspective of them just changes. Right. So f- by the 80s and 90s, I looked at the 70s as my adversary. I don't want to be that anymore. I hate that. You know, it, I'm not that. I'm not that 22-year-old guy anymore. Then by 2004 or 5, 6, after living in the Netherlands for two years and after, I mean, trying to to expand myself as much as I could, sleeping in park benches sometimes, um, I looked back, I said, you know, I've got an idea. I'm going to go back, but I'm going to go back in a way that I love. Because some of those songs are very good songs. And that's what the show is today. It's a look back from 1972 to 2019. And there's it's a two-hour show of... Me going back and singing, whether it be Put the Weight on My Shoulders, Love of My Life, or Ugly Man, or, um, or Mama Coco, or, and how I feel it now, which is very respectful right. of the record, but just who I am now. And, and how I could apply my passions to it now. Plus all the songs in between coming up to Wilderness Road. It's, it's more of an odyssey than it is a concert.
1: But when you when you have that struggle, when you have these songs that kind of define you in the public's eye, and then you shun them, like I, I, I for know, a while, yeah, for a while. Was there a point where you heard it and you thought, "Oh my God, that's a pretty good song"? Like I don't know if you can, like I I, I don't know if you could ever hear your songs the way I hear your songs, um, and to appreciate because you have the experience of recording it, writing it, the playing it for years and years and years. And then I, I have memories that associate certain songs that you did that are part of my life in a certain timeline. But I, I wonder if you were ever to ever step away and go, oh, yeah, this is
0: a great time. Well, the problem is this. As some people associate some songs with their lives in an unusual positive way, whether it be I just want to stop or people got to move yeah. or... Whatever song, and I was doing this and I remember this, it's, it's a form of nostalgia, but whatever it is, it's it's an association of a good memory. Mm-hmm. Sometimes for the artist, it's, it's an association of a bad memory. Right. It's who I was then, and I can't be anymore. I'm older now. Maybe people don't like me as much. Maybe I'm not as good as I was. Maybe I'm failing. Those associations can be very, very, very powerful until that's why I'm a stickler about this in this conversation, is that if an artist doesn't find something deep inside of him or her, to latch on to, to light that fire again. You can't do it. You can't. You know, Rocky Marciano was offered over a million dollars to fight Floyd Patterson in 1956, 57. He had retired. And the offer was an an unbelievable amount of money for the time. And Rocky Marciano was the only undefeated heavyweight champ and he's telling the story. It's on YouTube. And I was very curious. There are teachers everywhere, by the way. Mm-hmm. So for a minute, he was my te- he was a guru. He was my teacher. And he looked at the camera and he said, so he said, instead of taking the fight, I, said, I had to see if the fire was still inside of me. Because the fight part is easy. The training is hard. So he said, I went back to the, to, to, to the farm where I used to train. He said, I did it for a day or two. He said, I lost the fire. I'll never, million dollars will never do it. He says, it was over. Wow. So when I said that, when I, I I, I mean, I, I, I not said that, when I heard that, I said, I I need to know that about myself. So many times I just go to my piano room and think about what I want to sing, what I want to talk about, and I'd all of a sudden go into this old song, Ugly Man, or that. I go, God damn I can still sing those notes. God damn it still my my stomach still churns. When I sing canto my headache goes away. I feel the music running through me. I got to do this. You know this is this is great. This is this is a gift. And you only know it when that vibration runs through you like it did when I was 6 years old and that Panis Angelicus ran through me and said that's what it's really about. That's what all the religious and philosophical and all the stuff, the complicated stuff written by every philosopher, every prophet, It the experience is when you say, ah, oh, that's what it is. It's this thing that makes me feel glad to be alive.
1: It's such a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, your music has meant a lot to me. And in um, and, and, and doing the research, as I said, I see you as a student of... Many things, mainly music, but many other of things. Life. And, yeah, of life. So my final question to you is now, I, I notice you're doing a lot of teaching or you're doing some classes. Yeah. Tell me what you get out of teaching and, and um, what that means to you.
0: It does a lot for me um, because I'm able to share. And it's really a great feeling to share. It does a lot for me to see that some people get it. It does a lot for me to see some young students um, might apply some of my experience, my experience, that they might model themselves in some way, never fully, but in some way they might get glean something from it. Um, as simple as that. Uh, you know, in, in, in nature, oh, stars go to a supernova. And as they go to a supernova, they're about to, implode explode and as they implode and explode all their gases and their their fine elements uh, form other stars so i said if stars do it then then people have to do it
1: wow thank you so much for doing this sure
0: pleasure really means a lot to me sure
1: thank you